I was in West Plains this past weekend, and man, it was a vibrant church. I was overwhelmed during the praise and worship of the church, so much so that I was brought to tears in both services during the worship. I, I haven't had that happen a lot. But I was overwhelmed with the presence of the Lord there. The church is just doing great. They, they went through a, a kind of a, a tough time after a senior pastor who had been there a long time retired. And um, they kind of had a split, a schism. People left. They had a, a younger pastor came in. And he's really done a good job of teaching and training. And the guy that invited me out there was walking out of the church on Sunday. We were going to eat. And he said, he was just telling me how much he liked this pastor, Pastor John. And he goes, you know, Doug, our pastor really lives out what he teaches. And I thought, wow, what a concept. That you actually do what you tell other people to do. Wasn't that why Jesus condemned the Pharisees? Because they didn't do that? He didn't say don't do what they teach you. He said don't be like them. He said do what they teach you. That was a problem. I think one of the reasons we don't see a lot of vibrant churches in America is we have a lot of pastors that tell you to do stuff they don't do. This guy told me, Doug, you wouldn't believe it. He actually meets with people and disciples them. Like that was a novel concept. Something that's almost unheard of for a pastor to actually meet with people and take them through the Word and, and disciple them and help them learn what it means to follow Jesus. Well, if you look at the book of Acts, you know, we've been going through this unfolding plan of Jesus continuing his work through his disciples. Luke wrote Acts to Theophilus. He wrote the first letter, the Gospel of Luke, to him to share about the work of Jesus. And then Acts of the Apostles he wrote to, to share how that work continued through the church. And now we're at a place, we're at a dividing point. We're at the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13. They didn't have chapters back then. They just wrote the letter. The, the chapter identifiers and the verses were put in later to help people find addresses to know where to go find something. But it was just one continuous letter. But in the letter, we're at the point today where the whole first part of the letter dealt with the church in Jerusalem. The whole second half of the letter from 13 to 28 dealt with the church out of Antioch. And it's a dividing point. The first part dealt with the Jewish church. The second part dealt with the Gentile church. The first part dealt with the Apostle Peter primarily. The second part deals with the Apostle Paul. The first part specifically dealt with the Gospel's expansion from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. From 13 to 28 deals with the ends of the earth. And we're at a dividing point. Now, from the time that Jesus was crucified to the time we are right now to where the Gospel is going out from the church at Antioch, the first really missionary sending church is how long? You know how long it is? 16 years before they get to the point 
to where they have a church reaching out to the rest of the world. Well, it was a process, right? If you go back and you look, the Jews were being reached out to in what? Acts chapter 2. In chapter 6, we see Greek-speaking Jews being reached out to. Chapter 8, we see half-breed Jews, the Samaritans being reached out to. In chapter 10, we see one Gentile and his family in Cornelius. In chapter 11, we see many Gentiles up in Antioch being reached out to. 16 years to get to that point. Why? Well, God's plan took time because of the bigotry of His people, the stubbornness of His people. Do you know how He got the church to move beyond Jerusalem? Persecution. Yeah, persecution. It wasn't like they said, okay guys, we're going to go do this. How many times did God have to tell Peter, Peter, go to Cornelius' house? He had to show him a vision three times. They sent Barnabas up there, remember? And Barnabas goes get Saul. Now, that was an interesting thing that he went and got Saul to minister to these Gentiles. Because Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's why this chapter is really kind of incredible at the beginning of it when you stop and think about it. But... It takes time to unfold God's plan because of the stubbornness of His people. As this plan begins to unfold, the church sends somebody out here in Acts 13. The church at Antioch sends a group, and this is the first of Paul's four missionary journeys. (coughs) He had three voluntary journeys and one involuntary where he was taken as a prisoner to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome, but he really didn't go under his own power. The other three, he took some... Body and he went out on a missionary journey, but this is the first of four. And just as sure as he goes to his first place, guess what? Satan's sitting right there waiting, right there to counterfeit the message of the gospel because that's what he does. He's always a counterfeiter. He's always a liar. And so, as we look at this text today in chapter 13, 1-12, what I want to show you is Basically, three things God reveals to to us. And one is the priorities of a vibrant church. The first four verses really lay out, not for the first time, we've seen it before in Acts 2 and Acts 4, marks of a good church, a vibrant church, a local church body. What, What should it look like? I saw one in West Plains, Missouri. It wasn't... A huge church. I've been in churches that are much bigger, much larger, but boy, it was vibrant. They were doing outreach. They were sending missionaries. They were praying. I bet that guy who invited me prayed with me 20 times in a two-day period. I would watch him, and he was talking to somebody, Chuck, and he'd be talking to him, and, and they would say, man, you know, my son's just making really bad choices. And, and they're just talking about it with him, you know, when somebody's asking what's going on, not even talking to him. And he goes, hey, can, can, I, can we just pray right now for him? Like, right on the spot. That was happening all over. Not just him, other people. These were a praying people. Fervently praying. And that's a mark of a church. We're going to see that. Making disciples, a mark of the church. Sending people on missions, a mark of the church. Teaching. A mark of the church. They, they had it all. 
And that's what we see here in 1 through 4. But we're also going to see how God exposes a counterfeit. The exposure of a counterfeit. He reveals the exposure of a counterfeit. When Elemas pops on the scene and, and presents himself as a Jewish prophet, as a representative of Jesus, he's a counterfeit. And he tries to lead the proconsul away. The proconsul was like a governor, like a city official who was appointed by the Senate in Rome. And he was a person of influence. And that's where Satan always tries to go, places of influence. He tries to mislead people. And boy, has he done it over the last two years. He's whipped up so much fear, and the church has been silent. He's a counterfeiter. But third, we're going to see the evidence of His truth. God reveals the evidence of His truth. He's not calling us to blind faith. Just a blind walk. He's calling us to a faith that's based on evidence that you can look at throughout history and see the certainty of what He said. He's given us something that has really been... People have been trying to disprove this for thousands of years. And they can't. Because He has guarded it and He wrote it and presented it in such a way that it has withstood the test of time. Amen. So, those are the things that we're going to see in this text. Small text today, 1-12. through 12, The priorities of a vibrant church, the exposure of a counterfeit, and the evidence of His truth. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 13 and read with me. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! Have you ever done that when you've shared the Gospel with somebody? <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness! I mean, Paul's definitely getting kicked out of Evangelism 101 in a lot of seminaries with this kind of language. Full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God bless His Word. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, we, we start off in the church at Antioch. Do you realize at this point in time, there's only two recognized churches? The church is the people, right? But there was an authority structure already in place in two places. We don't hear about a church at Damascus, but believers were there. We know Ananias was there. He's referred to as a disciple. The disciples. There were discipleship groups in different places. But the organized church, the leadership-driven church, the ones who would validate whether people were really authentic or not in Christ was in Jerusalem and now Antioch. Those are only two in the whole world. The only two in the whole world. Even Samaria wasn't referred to. I'm sure there probably were believers there. Remember they sent Peter up there. Maybe there was a church there, but it's not mentioned in Scripture. It's only Antioch and Jerusalem at this point. Why? Because they haven't, we don't have Paul's letter right now to Timothy explaining church leadership or Titus, explaining how a church should function. They're just figuring this out. This is kind of like the birth of the church. It's, it's moved from the birth stage. I mean, it's, it's, it's been in the embryonic stage and now we're in the birthing stage and it's kind of starting to take some form. And so that's what we see. So the church at Antioch is doing what the church in Jerusalem was doing. And what are they doing? Well, they're teaching. How do we know that? Because it says... There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. What is a prophet? A prophet is tells, they explain God's Word. They give God's Word to people. Teachers explain the Word. So they were teaching. Now, what's amazing is who's the first one they mention? Barnabas. Why? Who did Jerusalem send up there? Barnabas. And what did he say to him? Remain faithful and steadfast, he said. He went up there and he taught them. He went and got Saul. And together for a year, they stayed up there teaching these disciples. Guys, teaching is important. Understanding God's Word is important. And God brings teachers and prophets and apostles. He He wants His people to grow in their understanding of His Word. And, and yes, the, the Scripture says you don't, you don't need any man to teach you. Why? Because no man can teach you. If somebody is really teaching the Word of God, it is the Spirit through that man. It's not the man. The Holy Spirit works through His people to teach. That's why... I don't want to go off on, on a rabbit trail, but I get frustrated at Bible teachers who put what God reveals through them and they try to sell it out in the world and make a profit off of it. That's, that's not theirs. 
They copyright what God gave them. You can't copyright God's stuff. It's God's. Amen. There's nothing that people put out in print anywhere related to the Bible that's true and accurate with spiritual truth that they get on their own. It comes from God. And so teachers are an important part of the growth process of the body of Christ. And so that's part of a vibrant church. But look who's here. you got Barnabas, who was from where? Cyprus. Then you have Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, Niger was North Africa. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene, North Africa. So you have two guys from really pagan lands as far as the Jews were concerned that are now part of this group. They're part of the prophets and teachers that are leading the church. Who else? You have Manaean. He's a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Manaean was actually raised as like a foster child alongside Herod Antipas. He was a friend of Herod's. Herod the Tetrarch was the one who killed John the Baptist. He was the one who had Jesus come in front of him. That was Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. And this Herodian, he was a Herodian. You know what the term Herodian meant? It meant somebody that was, it was a a sect or a group of Jews that were favorable to Rome. They They had a relationship with Rome. Why? Because Herod did. Herod had favor with Rome. Rome's who put Herod the Great in power. And so, you have Hellenists, you have pagans from northern Africa, and you have Herodians. And then you include Saul. Saul's in there. Saul would have never hung around these people, but they were worshiping. Why? Because they had the bond of Christ. They had the bond of Christ. And so, there were teachers and prophets And what were they doing? They were making disciples. That's what they did. Saul and Barnabas, if you go back to Acts 11, it says they taught for a year. What were they teaching? They were teaching God's truth. They were growing people. They had men and women. They were training. And so because they were making disciples, the church was growing. That's how the church grows, through making disciples. You make disciples. Jesus said, go what? Make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. Teach them. So that has to be part of a vibrant church. If your church isn't making disciples, you need to be asking why. If your church isn't teaching God's Word. I mean, listen, there are a lot of pastors in our culture today that that will... Put this open, they'll, they'll read one verse, but then they'll talk for 45 minutes about something that has nothing to do with what they just read. That, that's not teaching God's Word. That's getting up and, and, and preaching and sharing an opinion of something, but it's not explaining God's Word. Teaching relates to the Word of God. Making disciples, you're making them disciples of who? Of Jesus, not yourself. You're trying to train them to follow Jesus. And so those are two marks of a vibrant church that we ought to be asking if our church isn't doing those things, why? The third thing is worship prayer. Fervent prayer. Not just prayer, fervent prayer. If you go down and look at verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. 
I covered this with fasting a couple of years ago. Fasting is not a novel thing that you do. All these churches today, they do a Daniel fast. Daniel didn't fast the way the Bible uses fasting. Daniel fasted because he was commanded to eat the king's food and it was tainted. It did not meet the ceremonial guidelines. So he said, I will not dishonor God. I won't eat that. That's why Daniel fasted from that food. He didn't fast in a way most people fast in the Bible. Most people, when they fast in the Bible, it is is like if the motorcycle is prayer, fasting is the sidecar. You don't see fasting apart from prayer. Because fasting is an intensity of prayer so much so that you don't want to eat. You're so focused on intensely praying that you don't eat. That's what fasting is. It's not a good luck charm to fast. Say, oh, I'm going to fast about this because I really want to see God answer this. But then you don't even really pray that much. You just give up food. The whole purpose of giving up food is to pray. So if you're not praying, then your fasting is really worthless, to be honest with you. Because the fasting has to accompany prayer. The whole reason you fast is because of prayer. But that's what they were doing. They were worshiping. They were fasting. Why do you think they were doing that? Well, I believe because they possessed something people in their lands didn't have. The people over in Niger, the people over in Cyprus, the people over in Cyrene, they did not have the Gospel. And they were asking God, how do we get the Gospel to them? And so the Holy Spirit speaks in the midst of that. And then we see the fourth mark, which is evangelism missions. If a church is not involved in missions and evangelism, boy, you ought to be scratching your head because that is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be sharing the Gospel. We're supposed to be sending people this little small church in West Plains, Missouri, sending missionaries to other countries, going down to the city, doing what we do with uh, Reggie Gaffney down there and giving food to the homeless. They're doing that in their city and sharing the Gospel with people. Missions and evangelism is a mark of a church. That's, that's what it should be. But it starts with prayer. Back in 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul told Timothy... Timothy, make supplications and prayer for all people. You should be praying. In 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, Every man, everywhere, men should pray, lifting up holy hands. Paul says, pray without ceasing. So prayer is the starting point, And it's as they're praying, the Holy Spirit says, Hey, I want you to take Paul and Barnabas and send them out to the pagan lands. Remember where we are. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria already penetrated with the Gospel. Now we've got to get to the ends of the earth. And he's saying, I want you to send Saul and Barnabas. They're going to be the guys. They're going to start it. They're going to go plant churches. They're going to go make disciples. They're going to go share the Gospel. And so, they're fulfilling Acts 1.8. Be my witnesses. Paul writes about it later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.20 where he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Nobody in the kingdom can claim they're not an ambassador. Now, you may not be doing your job, but every, if you are in the body of Christ, you're an ambassador for Christ. You represent Him to the world around you. 
And what does an ambassador do? They're a go-between. They're like a priest. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 2.9. He said, we are a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation proclaiming the excellencies of Him who's called us. So that's what we're supposed to be about. And so the Holy Spirit says, I want you to send Paul and I want you to send Barnabas. And so that's what happens. And so it says in verse uh, 4, so being sent out by who? Were they sent out by the church at Antioch? Who were they sent out by? The Holy Spirit. This is a divine mission. This is not some leader in the local church saying, hey, you need to go do this. The Holy Spirit spoke through those leaders and said, go, and they recognized that. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues. Why in the synagogues of the Jews? Why did they go there? Why did they go? Why did Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogues to the Jews? Why didn't they just go start sharing on the street corner? Well, I know God sent them, but there was a there was a reason for it. Yes, he does first to the Jew. Why? Because guys, we miss this. I really believe we miss this. Christianity is true Judaism. Christianity is true Judaism. True Jews are Messianic believers. They believe in Yeshua, Messiah. They believe Jesus, the Son of David, the King. Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, who was the priest in the order of Melchizedek. They believe true Jews. Believe that. That's true Judaism. The first Christians were Jewish. Well, they were. And that is Judaism. The, the, the intent always from God was that His people would believe in Messiah. In salvation. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. But, if you look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Moses, Joshua, David, Ezekiel, Isaiah, just go through the list of all the godly people. Job. They would be considered Christian. That's true Judaism. Like the people of Antioch. And so they go into the synagogues to proclaim this truth. And what happens? The moment they walk in, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, this guy named Elymas comes up. And notice how it describes him. A certain magician. He's a sorcerer. The word there means sorcerer. You know what a sorcerer is? Remember back in Acts chapter 8? Simon the magician... Simon the sorcerer, what did it say about Simon back then? What did he say about himself? You remember? It said he was what? He was God. He had divine power. Remember that? The people in the city claiming that back in Acts chapter 8? Someone great. This is the power of God. Sorcerers claim to have some kind of inside track to divine power and connected to God. But notice what else it says. It says he was a Jewish false prophet. He would not have referred to himself as a Jewish false prophet. He would have referred to himself as a Jewish prophet. Luke 
tells us he was a Jewish false prophet. So, he's masquerading himself as a sorcerer with a divine connection to the Almighty using his magical powers. He's masquerading as a Jewish prophet speaking for God. But then he even goes another step. It says, a Jewish false prophet named what? Bar Jesus. That's son of Jesus. He's claiming some kind of super apostle status as a representative of Jesus. So he's covering all his bases here, but what's so amazing about it is these are all contradictory to each other. Think about it for a second. A sorcerer is a contradiction to Jewish and Christian belief. Back in Exodus 22, it says in 22.18, do not permit a sorceress to live. So, if he's saying he's a sorcerer, that's directly contradicting Jewish and Christian belief. But also, a Christian is a contradiction to Jewish at that time and sorcery. And then third, he's a Jewish prophet, which is a contradiction to sorcery and Christianity. So he's conflicted in all these ways. He's saying all these things to cover all his bases. And who is he hanging around? The governor of the the island. He's hanging around the guy of influence. Why? Because that's where Satan goes. He always tries to establish in the halls of influence a presence. Look at America. Look at government in America. Look at education in America. Look at the courts in America. Look at the military. Look in sports and entertainment. Everywhere there's influence, guess who's whispering lies? And he's trying to establish a counterfeit gospel. The counterfeit gospel he whispers in our country is not about some Hindu statue or some Buddhist statue. You know what the lie he whispers in our country is? You can do whatever you want. That's the gospel of America. You, you don't have to live under anybody's leadership. You, you do what you want. Your truth is your truth. And you do whatever you want. That's the, that's the lie that Satan has influenced even the courts. Think about this, guys. The Supreme Court gives protected, codified status to homosexuality that just 30, 40 years ago was recognized by everybody as something abhorrent and wrong. It was, it was a dysfunction. It was against, I mean, reality. Because if the whole world was homosexual, we wouldn't exist. Right. That in itself ought to clue you in. This is not the way it's meant to be. But the courts now have codified that. They said that's protected status. Now they're looking at protecting the fact that a guy can say he's a woman. That's insane. That's insanity. It is satanic because he's the father of lies. And he's trying to influence. That's what he's doing here. Paul and Barnabas, they're going out. They're trying to get truth in here. And Elymas is trying to whisper in the ear of the proconsul Sergius Paulus to say, don't go with them. Don't believe that. Same thing happens in our country. 
Same thing happened back in Acts 8. Simon the magician. He wanted to use God's power of influence for himself. He was a counterfeit. He was a poser. In the same way, Elemas is a poser. A truth teacher in Acts 8 was Simon. The counterfeit was Simon the magician. It was Simon Peter versus Simon the magician. Chapter 13, the truth teacher is Paul and Barnabas. The counterfeit is Elemas. They oppose biblical truth. Ecumenical movements. You know, I get asked to speak sometimes at uh, ecumenical things or go be part of an ecumenical multi-faith thing. In fact, I still get stuff from Houston. Ecumenical means we're all going to come together and agree on, on things like we, we all love each other. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. I can't go to them. I'm just going to tell you, I can't go to them. The only ecumenical prayer meeting in the Bible is with uh, Jezebel's prophets and Elijah, and it didn't work out too well for the prophets. You don't see it in Scripture. We don't compromise. Yeah. <clears throat> so, what about when Jesus said, you know, that he went out and he was for everyone, right? That Jesus went. And want to bring everyone in, into Christ. So you're saying that we just need to stay in the burden and just our own? No. Stay amongst our own and not go out and pull people over? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, no, we go out among them, but we don't join them. You see, one of the common themes that is talked about in those things when they do it is we all worship the same God. That's a lie. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, and non-Messianic Jews worship a false god. Even liberal Christians worship a false god. It's a god of their own making. I read last week one guy said the most idolatrous uh, place in America a lot of times on a Sunday morning is the American church. Because people go in there and they worship their own version of God. That was the problem with the Jews. When Jesus told the Jewish leaders, you're of your father the devil, you don't know my father. If you knew him, you would accept me. He made a distinction. But I had a guy at one of the SWAT meetings who stood up and was very upset when I said, Jews don't worship the same God we do. They don't. They worship a different God. It's not the God, the Father of Jesus. And so I'm not going to go join that and be a part of a group like that and say, you know what, we just all come together in love and not speak the truth. You let me share the Gospel with them, you bet I'll be there in a heartbeat but they're not going to let me share the Gospel with them. When I tell them what I want to do, they say, well, that's okay. This might not be the event for you. <laughs> because they don't want... Listen, it's like philosophy teachers. Go to college campuses. You can talk about any religion in the world except Christianity, true Christianity. They don't care. They will sit there and they will jaw jack with you all day about Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam... Judaism, you can talk about it and they're fine. You mention Jesus, they shut up. They don't want to talk anymore. He's the dividing line. Because every other religion in the world teaches a works-based way to God. Only Christianity teaches it's not what you do, it's what He did for you. And it's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 
That is very exclusive, and people don't like that. They want it to be wide and broad, and we all, one big family, come in. We need to have a big tent for for all religions. We all believe in the same thing, and that's a lie from the enemy. We don't. Coexist. Say again? Coexist. Oh, yeah. And the road to heaven is narrow. Yeah, but listen. These people are just like Pharaoh's magicians, Jezebel's prophets, like Dothan, Korah. They want to lead a rebellion. This guy's trying to lead Sergius Paulus away from Paul and Barnabas. It says it in the text. He's trying to lead him away from the faith. That's his motive. That is satanic. And so we see the exposure of a counterfeit. It's seen. Uh, It's kind of like my grandma used to say, the proof is in the pudding. You know what that means? That means that when you taste it, you know if it's real or not. That's what that means. And so, if you want to be a Hindu, go be a Hindu. See how that works out for you. If you want to be a Muslim, go be a Muslim. If you want to be a Buddhist, go be a Buddhist. See how you really... I don't know anybody that worships in those three fields and is at peace. I don't know anybody. Because it's a false religion. There's no hope in that. There's no truth in that. And so, what is the evidence of His truth? Well, we see that in verses 9-12. through Look at what happens. This is how we respond, Derek, going back to your question. Look at how Paul responds. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Spirit. So he is full of the Spirit here. This is not him just going off on a tear. He is under the leadership of God when he says what he's about to say. You son of the devil. Why would he say that? Well, what did, what did he claim to be? A sorcerer. He claimed to have a divine, like an entrap to God's power. He, he claimed to be a representative of God with His magic. God, He could do those magic things because of His connection with God. And what Paul's saying is, you don't have a connection with God. You're a son of the devil. So he's directly contradicting what he said. He says, you enemy of all righteousness. There's no way, no way you could be the son of Jesus You can't be a representative of Jesus because Jesus was ultimate righteousness. He was ultimate righteousness and you're not righteous in any way, shape, or form. He's just calling Him out for His claims. He says, you're full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? There He's attacking His claim to be a Jewish prophet. Who was the greatest Jewish prophet? prophet of all time. John the Baptist. Baptist. And what does it say about John the Baptist? What did he do? He made straight the paths. So he's directly attacking all three of his claims and exposing him for the fraud that he is because he's truth. Paul's walking in truth. And then look what happened in verse 11. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Guys, that is not a statement you want said about you. I'm, trust me. Pharaoh and Elymas know very clearly when the finger of God or the hand of God is against you, it is not a place you want to be. 
And that's what happens. He is struck with blindness. Who would have understood that better than Paul? Blindness was an analogy to where Elemas was spiritually. It was also is an example to Sergius Paulus of his teaching. It's dark. It's blind. There's nothing good about it. And notice what Sergius Paulus says. Or what Luke says about him. He believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at Elymas going blind. Is that what it says? It says he was astonished at what? It is teaching at the Word. Signs do not lead you to God. Signs may authenticate people as being from God, but it's only the Word that's going to lead you. People believe because of the truth of God's Word. And it also doesn't say anything about the, the, the guy repenting of his sin and coming to Christ after he was struck blind. No. You know, he just went on about his business. He did. Just like Simon the Magician. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. But notice this, guys. Finally, we, we, we're not called to a blind faith. Yeah. We, we are called to look at the source. What is the source of our faith? It's God Himself. He gives us His Word. This is a tested, tried, and true witness of God and of Jesus in the faith that He calls us to live by. So we have to look at the source, but we also look at consistency. If you look from beginning Genesis to Revelation, you see the consistency of God throughout time. There is no back and forth. I mean, He's not like the CDC or NIH, man. He's not going back and forth. You know, back and forth, back and forth. That's not who He is. He doesn't, he doesn't do this and check what the winds are, the political winds. This is His unfolding plan and He calls us to follow Him. And He's consistent. We have to look at the source. We have to look at consistency. But you know what else we look at? The external evidence. You're here in a room today because He's changed somebody's life. And that somebody invited you to come here. That somebody... You've seen a change in maybe? I hope you see a change in me. I hope you see somebody sold out in my life. If you would have saw me 30 years ago, you wouldn't be sitting in here listening to me teach anything. Dr. Moeller two weeks ago said, you know, it's changed the culture we live in. We used to say, do you know if you, if you died tonight, do you know if you'd go to heaven? That was kind of a... Um, kind of a a question to diagnose where people were spiritually. He said that question's gone. You know, he said what we should ask people now? What's your purpose in being here? Why are you here? Why are you on the earth? Let them tell you your answer. And then follow up with this one. How's that working out for you? You get people to do a self-reflection of why they're here. We have one purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we're supposed to be about. If we're not in a relationship with the one true God, I don't care how much money you have, I don't care how much power you have, you will never have a sense of peace in your life. You will live constantly in a state of fear. Maybe one day my money will be gone. Maybe my power will be gone. Maybe my family will be gone. But when you have a relationship with the one true God, 
You live in peace, no matter what's going on around you. No peace to the wicked. That you live with a trust in the one true God. You can believe in false religions, like I said, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, all these. Or you can believe in an infinite personal God who made man in His image with dignity and value and sent His Son Jesus to die on a cross to pay for our selfishness and our selfish rebellion against God's leadership. We grow up being selfish and rebellious against God. We want our way. We don't want to follow Him. We, don't, we, we want to do what we want to do. And we live in a country that has exacerbated that by saying, it's your way. Do it whatever you want. And so now we've got a country full of people. And Jimmy, I, I really hold to what I said last week or a week ago that I think maybe even in the church, even people who go to church every Sunday, 10 to 15%, maybe, maybe, of real true believers in Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a lot of people that know about Him, but they don't know Him. They don't know Him. And they're going to hear the words that He said in Matthew 7, Depart from Me, for I never knew you. I never knew you. Those are the saddest words in Scripture to me. So, Lord, I just thank You today. I thank You for... Greg and Scott being here. No, there's no coincidence that anybody's here today. And I pray that you would take these truths that we've read about, the example of Paul confronting Sergius Paul or, or sharing with Sergius Paulus and confronting Elymas, the example of the vibrant church in Antioch. Lord, we would be vibrant believers and followers for you. We would be bold. We would be ambitious as far as the gospel. Time is short. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone in this room who's never bowed their heart to you, that today would be the day they say, I'm yours, I want to follow you. I don't even know what it all means, but I know I do not want to live my life outside of your leadership any longer. I want you to be my king and my savior today. Just tell them that right where you are, if that's, if that's your desire. Lord, thank you for your truth. Bless the rest of our week, the rest of our day. May we do everything for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.